welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guests are Camilla Hurdy, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Akron School of Law, and Mark A. Lemley, William H. Newcomb Professor of Law at Stanford Law School and Director of the Stanford Program in Law, Science, and Technology. We will discuss their article, Abandoning Trade Secrets, which will be published in the Stanford Law Review. So welcome to the show to both of you. I believe you're both uh, repeat guests. Yep. Yeah, that's right. So thanks both of you for coming on. Um, this was a really fun and interesting paper, uh, especially for someone who teaches intellectual property, including trade secrets, but, but honestly is not I have not really focused much on trade secrets in the past, and this really got me thinking about them in an interesting and, and provocative way. Uh, but for listeners who may know even less about trade secret law than I do, I wonder if you could just say a little something about what a trade secret is. Like, in other words, what kind of information is protected by trade secret law, and what kind of protection does the law provide? Great. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll take that one. Um, so trade secrets are protected under both state and now federal law. And basically, uh, to have a protectable trade secret, um, the claimant has to show that they have information that derives independent economic value from being kept secret. And that's the, the basic definition. We get that at the state and the federal level. Um, and um, I should also add that the sort of most common trade secret case you will see is a company trying to protect its trade secrets against its own um, employees. And so those employees are deemed to be under a duty of confidentiality with respect to the trade secrets they receive on the job. Um, and if they leave to work for a competitor or to do a startup, they, they can potentially get sued for, for taking the company's trade secrets. The, the one thing I'll add is just because it may be counterintuitive to people who aren't IP lawyers, is that the definition of things that can constitute a trade secret is extraordinarily broad. Uh, the statute talks about information. And while we think of trade secrets as a secret formula or computer code or something technical, it doesn't have to be. A lot of trade secret cases are over things like customer lists or business plans or even uh, something like a, a recipe. Uh, there are even cases in which religious scriptures have been asserted as the basis of a trade secret. Well, so what happens if a company or an information owner, I guess, uh, asserts a trade secret claim? Like, what kind of protection do they actually get? What happens if they're successful or, I guess, if they're not successful? Um, so if they're successful, the, the key is going to be, as with all IP regimes, the injunction, right? So they're going to get, um, ideally, if they if things work out best for them, they will get an injunction um, to stop the employee from or whoever the defendant is from using or disclosing the trade secrets. Um, or in some cases, they can even get um, what's sometimes called an activity injunction that actually will stop the employee from going and, say, working at a new company. Sometimes they can get that. And of course, there's also various damages available. Well, so, I mean, in general, my impression was always people tended to analogize trade secret protection to patent protection in the sense that they kind of both have a kind of invention discovery oriented sort of feel to them. But in the paper, you suggest that, that might not be the best analogy. And I, I wonder if you might kind of tease that out a little bit. Like, why do people tend to run with that analogy? And why do you think that, that it might be better to use alternative analogies to understand how trade secret law works. 
uh, I think we have the person to answer that since his article was arguably partly responsible, along with a Supreme Court decision for the analogy of trade secrets to patents. So I think I'll, I'll toss that one to Mark. Well, I, so look, I, I mean, I think the there's a lot of confusion about what why it is we protect trade secrets. Um, as a theoretical matter, you can think of this as a, a species of tort law. Uh, you've done something wrong, uh, taking my information for, through improper means, taking my information in violation of a breach of your duty of confidentiality. You can think of many of them as contract cases. Uh, you could talk about them as property cases. Uh, I mean, I think the best way to think about it is as a form of intellectual property. We are creating a legal right over and above uh, what tort law or contract law or property law would give you in some respects in order to encourage the development and deployment of new ideas and new information. That, to me, is the essence of an intellectual property right. Mm. Mm. Well, but so why the typical analogy to patents then? And, and why might that not always be the best analogy? Um, so I guess I'll, I'll add. Um, so, so Ryan, I love your question because I think that's really apt that, you know, the, the reality is there's a huge universe, as Mark was saying before, of information that's protected as a trade secret, not least of which is a customer list. Right. So why do we think of trade secrets as a one to one um, sort of um, um, choice between patents and trade secrets. And there's there's really a couple of reasons. Um, I think one is that just as a practical matter, um, they did start to become um, very important um, uh, sort of um, alternative ways to protect um, technology or, or, or prototypes and the like um, aside patents. Um, I think another reason really too is the, um, the way that trade secret law developed at the state level. And so really the, the, the biggest trade secret case, case that we have from the Supreme Court is Kiwani versus Bikron. What's the issue there? Well, the issue is, <laughs> d- does federal patent law preempt state trade secret law? So right there, we get this setup of this, 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 these two regimes as a choice, because the concern, of course, is that, um, you know, trade secret regimes will encourage people to keep things secret, um, whereas patent encourages disclosure. And so the Supreme Court literally goes through and it's like, yeah, there's three varieties of trade secrets. There's patentable trade secrets, there's potentially patentable trade secrets, and then there's unpatentable trade secrets. And so you get, it's kind of this fiction that trade secrets and patents are really one-to-one. And then, of course, Mark comes along with his his article, which, and I, I'm, I don't think I'm understating the influence of of the um, IP uh, surprising virtues of treating IP as trade secrets, at least within the academic field. And um, it, you know, the, the argument there, of course, and Mark can say it better, is sort of that, that 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 if we think of trade secrets as IP that only can be protected if you can keep them secret effectively, then it sets up this channeling between patents for subject matter that you cannot keep secret; it's self-disclosing. Um, and trade secrets where it's more efficient to do it that way. But 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 back to your question, Brian, I think the universe is much larger. And um, I'm hoping that that's something that this paper can start to chip away at, is the fact that trade secret law really does stem from unfair competition law. And um, as Mark and, and Mark McKenna have shown in, in a lot of their work, there's a lot of similar themes um, in, in non-patent areas. So... so, so- the one, so the one thing I'll just note there, I mean, I think one of the reasons you do see it in terms of a trade-off is where we are talking about the kinds of technical information that are potentially the subject of the patent, there is a choice to be made. 
So you, uh, if you want to patent your information, you can't keep it as a trade secret any longer. Uh, and so there are various points at which people have to make a choice as to certain kinds of information. But I think what Camilla is saying is in part that um, a lot of the work that trade secret law is doing isn't with patentable or potentially patentable technology. It's with a bunch of the other uh, pieces of information, and in particular, how those pieces of information regulate the employment relationship uh, in in ways that maybe people haven't really focused on. Well, so one of the things I thought was really interesting, kind of in the initial framing of the paper, was this way that you pointed to unfair competition law as being kind of foundational in the kind of creation of the concept of trade secret, and then suggesting that that implied a kind of potential analogy to trademark law rather than to patent law, as people commonly sort of make that patent law analogy in trade secrets, uh, which, you know, is uh, was a little surprising to me because normally we think of trademarks as being very public or definitionally public and trade secrets as being definitionally private. And yet you, you, you do point to some really interesting structural similarities. I, I wonder if you could identify some of those and, and talk a little bit about why you think that, in, at least in some context, might be a more helpful analogy. Um, yeah, so I guess I can just start, um, I think of these topics often very historically. So I'll just tell you a bit of the history that I sort of was looking at um, that led me to this conclusion of an analogy. So first off, I mean, well, we can just look at the names, right? Trade secrets, trademarks. Um, but um, I was looking at, as I was teaching trademark law, um, the, the the old Supreme Court case law like um, Rictanus and, of course, the, the trademark cases where the Supreme Court keeps saying trademarks, um, you know, as a species of uh, trademarks, to the extent that they're a species of unfair competition law, um, are there's they don't establish a right except as a pertinent, except as connected to an established business or trade in which the mark is employed. And I noticed that those cases were not um, necessarily limiting these ideas um, to trademark infringement. They were talking about the broader landscape of unfair competition. Um, and then as I started to delve more, um, you know, you look at some of these earlier treatises, um, for example, NIMS, The Law of Unfair Competition and Trademarks, this, the treatise has a chapter on goodwill, trade secrets, defamation of competitors and their goods. Um, so it's clear to me that historically the two were seen um, as, you know, palming off somebody else's, um, palming off your goods as somebody else's and taking another's trade secrets and competing with them using their trade secrets were both seen um, as acts of unfair competition that the common law very much cared about. Um, so that's that's one thing. Um, and I do think this point about no rights growth is exceptionally important. Um, that 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 the, the the patent analogy sets up this idea that we have kind of an open ended right in information, like you have in a patent, right? But then when you start to think about it, you're like, well, wait a second. The trade secret hasn't been vetted. It's not deemed to be novel and non obvious. Oh, and also you haven't disclosed a darn thing. You're keeping it secret. So what are you giving to the public in exchange for that right? And I started to think more and more about it. And then, of course, I, you, you think um, the fact that, that the, tr the, 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 tr the trade secrets used to have a use requirement, and then things really take off. And you see, oh, um, in fact, 
Um, again, historically, but we argue still today, the independent economic value, trade secrets like trademarks had to be used to be protected. Um, so that's, I think, where things um, come in is, is this idea of um, no use, no no right. Um, but of course, we need to get more nuance there because um, part of our argument is that it's not just about use. It's something much um, much more important, deriving um, economic value from, from the information. So there's one additional commonality that's worth noting because I think it ends up kind of uh, uh, driving uh, where we go with our suggestion at the end. And that is that uh, both trade secrets and trademarks, unlike patents and copyrights, uh, have the characteristic that they don't expire at a particular time. Right? A patent and a copyright is an explicit bargain that says we will give you this right for a limited time and then it enters the public domain. Uh, with both trademarks and trade secrets, uh, our definition of the sort of extent uh, and expiration of the right is functional. It's basically until it has stopped serving its purpose. Um, and the idea, I think, in both of those cases is we want you to get protection uh, for an uh, indeterminate period, uh, but we still want to tie that uh, protection to uh, to whether or not the thing that you're protecting has uh, is serving its purpose in trade. Mm. Well, it, I mean, it sounded to me from the article like at least historically this sort of durational conception of trademark and trade secret law was maybe a little bit closer, but that uh, over time and especially more recently, it seems to have diverged to some degree or at least different principles seem to be driving court's decisions as to whether a trademark or trade secret persists. I mean, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of how that works in a trademark context and how it works differently in in a trade secret context in relation to use or value or what a claimant would have to show in order to um, make out a valid claim for continuing protection? Uh, uh, Mark, I'll, I'll take it unless you, um, you, yeah. So, um, so Brian, you, you ask all the easy questions first. Um, yeah. So that's, we, so yeah, I mean, our, and I think, and, and I'm glad that um, Mark is here because I almost forgot to mention the biggest point of the paper, which is that just like trademarks, trade secrets can expire um you know, even if they're kept completely secret and you meet all the other requirements, if you fail to derive value from them in the same way that trademarks can expire if you fail to use them. Um, but you're exactly right that the way that these doctrines, I mean, it's all very fine to make this sort of elegant analogy between trademark abandonment due to non-use on one hand and trade secret expiration slash abandonment um, due to failure to derive economic value. And in practice, we, th we think there are a lot of really useful um, elements of trademark abandonment doctrine that could invigorate and clarify the trade secret abandonment that we propose via failure of independent economic value. But I do want to, to say that you're, you're, you, in practice, these do look very different. And in trademark law, we have this pretty crisp um, abandonment doctrine. I actually just taught um, abandonment in class. And right there's this, well, if, if the trademark owner... Um, has has ceased to use the mark um, with and has and lacks an intent to 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 resume use in the reasonably foreseeable future. It's deemed abandoned. 
you don't really see that in the trade secret cases. Instead, um, courts are, um, well, in general, we argue that they're largely rubber stamping the requirement that a trade secret derive independent economic value. So if you look at the trade secret cases, they don't really resemble that. Um, one sense in which they, a couple senses in which they do. One is that if the trade secret owner is using the trade secret currently in the business, you don't really have an issue. And that, you know, that seems to be sort of a one-to-one analogy to if you're using the trademark in all the proper ways, you're fine. Um, but when we start to get to the point of where where do your rights end, um, a lot of times the courts in the trade secret context will just presume um, that the trade secret derives, it derives, always did derive and is continuing to derive independent economic value from really circumstantial evidence, such as the fact that the owner has bothered to keep it secret, um, the fact that the defendant wants it. Um, the fact that the plaintiff um, is um, is willing to sue them in order to enforce it. Um, and so you get sort of this um, um, cascade of presumptions that have in many ways gutted um, any kind of robust analysis of how trade secrets might be abandoned due to failure to derive value. And so just to, to follow up on this, because I think we're now getting really to the sort of heart of our thesis uh, right. The way I would the way I would say it is this: um, both trade secret and trademark law have functional definitions for when does this secret end, uh, when does this right end. Um, trademark law, as Camilla notes, has developed a pretty uh, logical, coherent, well applied set of uh, doctrines. Uh, for deciding when you are no longer making use of a trademark and therefore have abandoned it. Trade secret law hasn't. uh, And in its place, what we've got is a bit of a hodgepodge, uh, a lot of sort of weird presumptions, but also just a number of courts that don't really think about that issue in terms of abandoning trade secrets. Courts think about whether or not the secret has been published uh, and is no longer secret, but they don't think about the uh, the question which strikes us as, as equally, if not more important, of whether or not the trade secret owner uh, is in fact getting value from that secret in a way that the IP regime wants to encourage. And so, and so just and so drawing from Drawing the analogy explicitly to abandonment, talking about this in abandonment terms, allows us to draw from the historical kinship between trademark and trade secret law, allows us, I think, to to point to the ways trademark law has got it right in figuring out whether or not something's been abandoned. And so it allows us to think more crisply about uh, when a trade secret might be abandoned. So what kind of factors specifically do courts seem to be looking at to determine whether or not a trade secret continues to have economic value? And I guess the other question I have is, you know, does it matter about like who it has economic value for? I mean, could it be possible for a trade secret to be abandoned by its initial claimant, even though the secret might still have value for someone else? Yeah, let me let me jump on in this one. Uh, so th- I think the answer is yes, and that that's really uh, the key uh, point that courts are not really identifying here. Um, so if we just 
think of a secret as information that has value, actual or potential, um, then it's easy to say, well, you know what, until there's uh, until no one could make use of it, uh, this secret has value and therefore it belongs to the trade secret owner. And the extreme version of that is Camilla Notes' cases that say things like, well, the defendant used the trade secret, so obviously it has value, case closed, right? Or uh, uh, the plaintiff sued and the plaintiff wouldn't have bothered to bring a lawsuit if this wasn't valuable to them. So clearly it has value, case closed. And we've gotten to the point where that sort of definition of value to the plaintiff has a, has a circular aspect to it. Uh, but in fact, it seems to me right, worth asking the question, right, is this valuable? And the question, is the plaintiff actually deriving value from this as separate questions because they don't always have the same answer? Now, Camilla mentioned the, um, uh, the original restatement of torts, the idea that information must be used in one's business. That was probably too restrictive. Uh, one of the problems with that were cases in which an employee came up with an idea and rather than disclosing it to their employer, just took it with them and started a competing company. And the courts said, well, you never used it in your business, so it's not, it must not be your trade secret. And, and you also potentially lost all of the prototype cases where the, the secret hadn't yet been commercialized. Right, exactly. So, so I, think what we, I think what the more modern statutory framework does is say, you know what, this value can be actual or potential. It doesn't have to be current use in a business. But our point is that it does, it all, it does have to be something from which you are or are planning to derive value. If you have left this on the shelf, if you've decided not to pursue the project, if you've gone in a completely different direction, it's not that the trade secret, that the information doesn't have any intrinsic value. It's that the plaintiff is not getting any value from keeping that information secret. And at that point, other people ought to be able to step in and make productive use of that information. Mm -hmm. Well, so just to underscore the point, because it struck me as an important one. I mean, in the context of rights like patents and copyrights, you know, even if the patent owner or copyright owner isn't doing anything, with the work of authorship or invention or discovery in question, if somebody else wants to use it, the patent or copyright owner is still entitled to a claim, at the very least, a claim on the profits from the use of that work of authorship or invention or discovery. Why is trade secret law different? Why should it be different? I mean, why why shouldn't the owner of a trade secret be entitled to a claim on the use of that secret information, even if they're not using it themselves? Um, so I think there's two, some big, really big reasons. One is that the, the trade secret owner hasn't, um, hasn't been through um, the same kind of hopefully rigorous um, requirements of protectability that you see certainly in the patent context, right? We don't know whether they've invented something new and non-obvious. Um, the second one is that um, the trade secret owner hasn't disclosed in any information. And that's really important, right? Because the whole disclosure theory of patents is one of the big reasons that we're letting you have this sort of control right. 
Um, and then the third is both patents and copyrights do eventually expire. They have term of years expirations. So we just think it's, it actually, when you start to think about it, it's pretty odd and not really a good thing that we would give unlimited in times right to information when the person who's claiming that right hasn't necessarily contributed as much as we might want to society. And there's, there's responses to that, like, um, sort of the um the sharing you know increased sharing ideas um so there there are certainly responses but as a general matter i think those three things are pretty strong um distinctions let me note one other thing because i think this is at the heart of most trade secret cases and it's it's one of the reasons i think this matters uh and that is that most of these cases come up in the context of an employer employee relationship uh and the combination of what we talked about earlier, the very broad definition of what information can count as a trade secret, um, including business uh, plans, customer lists, and so forth, and even things like negative know-how, information about what didn't work. Uh, when you couple that with the sort of very broad definition of, uh, of value that some courts are, are permitting, uh, the practical effect is that uh, a number of employees are hobbled in their ability to uh, leave their job, start a new company, or leave their job and go to work for a competitor. Uh, now, Camilla has written separately about the, uh, the sort of limitations we try to put on uh, trade secret law to make sure that you don't prevent someone from taking their general knowledge, skill, and experience. Uh, but I think it's also worth noting that because we've defined trade secrets so broadly, because they don't uh, expire on any given date, uh, and because they apply to people with whom you are in a business relationship or an employment relationship, we're putting a pretty significant limit on employee mobility if we don't have some point at which we say, you know what, this information, that's sitting on a shelf shouldn't be used to prevent an employee from going off and starting their own company or going off and making productive use of their knowledge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, so I wonder, I mean, are there broader social costs then associated with this? I, I guess it seems like a move to sort of presume economic value of secret information and effectively dispense with any kind of meaning, meaningful abandonment doctrine in a trade secret context. I mean, clearly that's bad for the employees who might want to use the secrets. Is it, is it bad in a more general sense as well? So, so just to add to the mobil mobility point, I think, I think the restriction on mobility this creates is really important. Um, there's also, of course, the, the, the very fact that, that some of this information that's, that's locked within the firm could be super, super valuable to society. And we want it to get out there however it gets out, however it is. You know, if there's something that society needs to know, and for whatever reason the company chose not to develop it, we want it to get out there. And then, Brian, your question is sort of, well, what about the countervailing considerations, right? Um, and there are some. There are some really important ones. I mean, why do we have trade secrets in the first place, right? The one, there's a couple of um, reasons to think about, but I guess some big that some some reasons we would want to let a company sort of claim an infinite duration of true trade secrets that are not general knowledge, skill, and experience, but true trade secrets um, as as against their employees would be. Um, I, I would say number one that they they might not develop it in the first place, but that I don't really buy. Um, number two would be that they might develop it, but then 
you know, spend too much money to, um, to keep it secret. Um, and, and, and then number three, um, that they, 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 and it's very closely related that they would, um, not, um, not share it with their employees. And, and, and the concern that you get from people like, um, Judge Posner in the Rockwell decision is that there would be all kinds of inter- inefficiencies, um, introduced into the innovation process if companies didn't believe that they could share with their engineers and so forth when they needed to. And so you could see, um, I think you, you could you could have an argument that, hey, if we allow for trade secret abandonment, um, we're going to be introducing those kinds of frictions with employees. And, you know, maybe just to use the um, case of the decade, um, Waymo versus Uber, right? If, um, if Waymo knows that if it shares with Anthony Lewandowski information about self-driving cars and then chooses not to develop self-driving cars... Maybe it won't develop self-driving cars in the first place, or maybe it will, but it will be too afraid to share it with Lewandowski because maybe it doesn't necessarily trust him. Um, and so you could have all those kinds of sort of ripple effects. I think that, I, I think that would be the main, um, the main um, cost in the other direction. Right. And, but what's notable about that is that those costs um, exist precisely in the circumstances where the company has actually got a theory of how it's going to derive value from this secret. Right. The most obvious case is I am using the secret and you take it to my competitor. Um, but I but but it's worth noting that our, our our concept of abandonment has room for other kinds of use. Um, one way you might use the secret is by selling a competing product. Um, uh, so if I come up with two pharmaceuticals that treat the same disease, I shouldn't have to develop both of them and take them both through FDA approval and testing. Uh, One way I might use the secret is by denying uh, other companies information that would allow them to compete directly with me in the marketplace. And we think that's a legitimate use of a secret. Um, Similarly, if I can license it to others who are making productive use of it, that too is uh, permissible and valuable. Um, So it's really circumstances, I think, where the company has just either gotten out of the line of business altogether uh, or has just decided not to pursue a particular uh, project, uh, that information is going to sit on a shelf unless we declare it abandoned and allow other people to pick it up. And the licensing point, uh, both points about sort of like um, deriving value from deliberately shelving or deriving value from licensing to others, exceptionally important. And and people, uh, I won't, say that this happened, but maybe it happened, that people would read the first sentence of the article, get so angry, they wouldn't read to the point of um, sort of, you know, <laughs> we allow for licensing, guys. And that is really an important um, um, caveat. We're not saying you have, we're not saying you have to use it or you don't have rights. We're saying you need to be deriving value from it. And that value can come from, you know, all sorts of ways. So, um, so very important to keep that in mind. Mm. Well, so if courts are doing it wrong now, what should they be doing instead? In other words, what what should courts be looking to to determine whether uh, information that's still confidential has actual economic value for uh, the for the company that owns it? And you know, what should courts look to to determine whether uh, finding abandonment is appropriate on the kind of policy grounds that trade secret law is intended to promote? 
Um, so, so we go through um, all sorts of evidence um, that courts have looked at now, and we kind of show what we don't think is enough, right? We don't think just sort of referencing the possibility that somebody might want to license it in future. That's we don't think that's enough. Um, but what is enough? So, um, so we're actually not um, too um, too down on the idea of use if the owner really is currently actively, um, you know, d- utilizing the trade secret in their business, you don't want courts to go and scrutinize that to make sure that it's, it's, it's good enough. And so there's, there's a very low threshold. You know, if you can show that it's um, um, more than minimal value and you're using it currently in the business, you're probably going to be okay. Um, if you can show that you're currently licensing it, likewise, um, deriving value, we're not going to sort of go in and substantively assess how much value. Um, so those would be some key things. I think the kind of scenario where we'd be make drawing some really difficult lines are going to be where we have an employee departure and say, um, you know, the, the employee was, was, was imagine the employee is herself, the inventor of the, the, the te- a technology, maybe it is an Anthony Lewandowski scenario and they've actually invented it. The employer says, we're not interested. Um, but we might be, we might be, and there's sort of an, an, a gray area there. Um, and then the employee leaves and goes and does it themselves. You can imagine some very difficult evidentiary questions that the court would have to um, ask there in terms of well, were, were they were they deriving actual or potential value um, at the time that the employee took it. Um, and, and by the way, that timing is important. They have to be deriving the value, independent economic value, at the point of the misappropriation. Um, so in any case, here's where we think that courts could in, um, it, uh, make this a, a more um, vigorous analysis if they took some of trademark, some, some lessons from trademark law. And in trademark law, you do ask, um, you know, uh, given a period of non-use or in this situation, um, a period where there's no identifiable value being derived from the information, can the employer, can the plaintiff come back and show, yes, but we had an intent, a provable intent um, to do something with it in the near future. And so that's where I think um, um, we do need um, to get a little bit um, um, more specific about what might be enough to show that intent. Um, So um, um, uh, I don't know what, what Mark's thoughts on that, that point are. Yeah, and I think right. So, so what trademark law says, which we think is useful, is um, uh, if you're using it, fine. If you're affirmatively licensing it out, you're using it, fine. If you're not doing any of those things, uh, but you're making active preparations to use it, fine. If you're not doing any of that for a certain period of time, we're going to presume that you've actually abandoned it, and you've got to come back and prove to us. Uh, that you actually have a, a a plan, and I think adopting that framework a little more explicitly for trade secret law would do two things. The first it would do is give us some clarity and kind of rein in some of the cases that we mentioned earlier are all over the map and trying to decide what might satisfy economic value and have kind of loosened that requirement. Uh, But the other thing I think it would do is it would allow us to release from the vaults of companies information that 
really is just languishing, right? Uh, that that uh, people can't take for fear of trade secret theft uh, claims, but which isn't really going to be used by anybody. I mean, some of the cases we talk about are cases where, uh, you know, the information hasn't been used in a product in 40 or 50 years. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and yet, uh, when somebody uh, goes ahead and, and uses it, there's a lawsuit filed. I do think there's a worry about opportunism. Uh, I'm not interested in, in making use of this information until someone else pops up and shows that it actually is valuable. And then I say, oh, that was mine all along. Uh, and I also think there's a value to employee inventors in having a backstop that says, if you just devoted three years of your life at the company to working on this thing and the company says, yeah, you know what, we just changed our priorities and we've decided not to pursue it. Um, you haven't just wasted three years of your life. You've at least got the possibility that maybe I could take my idea if I believe in it uh, somewhere else uh, and try to make it work. Mm -hmm. Well, so this this last idea I thought was really interesting. And I wonder if closing, if in closing, you could reflect a little bit on why the move you're suggesting might be consistent with the policy goals of trade secret law specifically, and maybe of like innovation policy more generally? Sure. So I, I think the, uh, I think trade secret law has always tried to balance the interests of employers against the interests of employees. And these are the, these are the cases we struggle most with in trade secret law. Um, it strikes me that the interest of the employer is at a low and the interest of the employee at a high. Uh, if the employee has invented something for their employer, the employer has decided not to make any use of it, not even licensing it out to others or, or getting a competitive advantage from making sure competitors don't have it. Uh, and the employee's interest in maybe taking it and running with it, if they believe in, in the uh, idea, but they couldn't persuade their employer, strikes me as quite high. Uh, so that in turn, I think, drives innovation uh, because it motivates employees. It may motivate them to work within the company uh, because they know that their invention's not just going to be put on a shelf. It may motivate them to take ideas that are sitting on a shelf and go out and start a new company. And those are the kinds of things that if we think of trade secrets as an intellectual property right, we want trade secret law to be encouraging, not discouraging. Um, and I'll just add the one other. So that that I, I echo that entirely. And and I think, you know, we're not just arguing that trade secrets can have value when they're returned to the market in the sense of the employee taking them and doing something new with them. There's also the public domain point, right? Because we're also talking about disclosure, disclosure of information. It could be the case that the employee just wants to share things with the world, especially if it's things of import, historical importance. So I also think there's something to um, with the historical record um, to discuss here as well. Well, Camilla, Mark, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed this paper. Uh, and I hope that listeners will check it out because there's an awful lot more in there that, that we didn't quite get to in the interview. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye.
Someone slipped and fell Was that someone you You may have longed for And a strength your courage to renew Do not be disheartened For we have hope for you He's done for others He'll do for you With arms wide open He'll pardon you It is no secret What God can do There is no night For in You'll never walk alone Always feel at home Wherever you may roam There is no power Can conquer you While God is on your side Just take him at his promise Don't run away and hide What he's done for others, he'll do for you too. With arms wide open, he'll pardon you. Yeah. 